So every once in a while, we, <laughs> we try to do this every week, but we talk about the feel of a service, you know? I just thought this would be a bad moment to have a pretty bubbly sermon, you know? <laughs> would not fit. Um, but actually, we are going to continue on uh, what Mike just talked about and just talking about persecution today. Jesus talks a lot about it. Uh, he talks about this very thing happening to people, happened to his disciples, happened to his followers, and he predicts it happening even for people like us, normal people. Uh, just like us. We're going to pick up in Matthew 10 today. I wanted to mention, though, I don't think Mike mentioned this, but today was Mike's last Sunday leading worship as well. So, aww, everybody, aww. So be sure to give him a big hug and say thanks, you know, for all the years he's led worship here. And we're going to have Mupp and Nicole up here in in a few weeks to commission them for their church plant. They'll be leaving. A lot of you guys maybe don't know this if you're visiting, but Mike and Nicole are going to plant a church in Brooklyn, New York, uh, hopefully beginning here in September, early September, to, uh, yeah, going to leave, well, whenever they can get their affairs in order, sell their house and so forth, so pray for that, but a lot of transition for their family, a lot of stress, I mean, it's a big life event and life change, so uh, a lot of you are, but pray for them, pray that they're, they're a target for the enemy, they're planting a church, and so pray for them, and, but pray that they can get a lot of things in order here to raise money and, and um uh, their household and, and all that's uh, taken care of. So, but but today's a big a big thing. So Mike's done a lot of here a lot here at the church. Big part of his job was leading worship, and, and today was his last one. So, but uh, thanks, bro. I'll just be the first to say, I guess, out loud. <laughs> uh, but thanks uh, for for all you've done musically, leading the band and pointing us to Christ through song. So, um, okay. Like I said, we're going to dive right in here to Matthew 10 and continue some of the things uh, Mike gave a great great historical example of some of the stuff that Jesus is talking about. Today, today's passage is uh, Matthew 10, 16 to 33, and we'll be looking at this idea of a sheep among wolves, sheep in the midst of wolves, uh, as Jesus talks about in verse 16. So a couple of sides to begin. Remember last week, this is a bit of a mini-series within a mini-series within a greater series. <laughs> That's probably too confusing, but anyway, it kind of is. Uh, Jesus has been talking to his disciples about, he's commissioning them to go and pronounce to all the towns in the area that the kingdom of God is at hand or near. This is still before he dies on the cross for sins, of course. It's before his resurrection. But he has been announcing that and demonstrating that. And he's, he's commissioning his 12, and some others too, we'll find out later here in the gospel, to go out and just say, it's near. And so he talked about himself. He looked out the crowds, remember, the towns, and he looked at them as a shepherd does to lost sheep and had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Without a shepherd, without a leader, and so he had love and compassion for them. One of the ways he demonstrated that compassion is to say to his, his team, go and announce that God is here to save them. I am here to, to rejoice that all the prophecies are becoming true, that I am the ultimate shepherd. I am going to go forth and bind up the brokenhearted. I'm going to go forth like a shepherd to a lost sheep, find them and bring them away from wolves into a den and heal them. I'm going to be their healer and their ultimate shepherd. So Jesus is saying, go announce that and demonstrate that as well. Part of it's words. Part of it is performing miracles like miracles of healing to demonstrate that that is in fact what God is, what Jesus is all about, and what God is doing in history right there. So that's the good news. It's it's the beginning of the gospel, not the essence yet. The essence is at the cross and the empty tomb. We'll talk about that some more today as well. But the beginning is here. So in a shadowy sense at least, God's kingdom is beginning to break into the world. Go, announce it. And so we talked about that last week. And this week, we're going to look at Jesus' continued words. Again, it's a bit of a part two. Next week's part three of how he encourages them. It's a bit of a somber tone. It's a reality check, a somber warning of the nature of the mission. They're going to be persecuted. Not all in the same way, not all to the same degree, and some maybe not much ever as they pronounce the gospel. But in general, the church being the body of Christ will be persecuted. In the same way Jesus was nailed to a tree, and because we're in that, and and Jesus, that Christ is in us, we will necessarily experience the same type of stuff. Not all to the same degree again, but we will be as we go forth and as we seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus in any capacity, but especially as we preach an offensive, like Christ did, offensive, humbling message of God being everything and us being nothing, We will face that resistance. The world's always against God, always against Christ, and he and us, us us and him, we will have that same type of experience. So so lots of promises, lots of warnings, lots of reality check today, uh, but lots of good stuff. And and as you can imagine, if you've been here for a little while, you can expect, as we've been seeing throughout the series, Jesus uses stuff like this. He uses everything he does 
a miracle or a teaching like this to demonstrate and to say something about himself and why he came into the world. This is not just about the church will be persecuted. This is about Jesus. It's about the ultimate sheep or lamb of God that was sent to the wolves. It's Christ. It's about him. This is partly what we're going to get today is we're going to learn about Jesus, the nature of his mission, how we share in it. So, so have that in mind. If we just get this matter of fact, the, the church will suffer, we're not getting the main, the gist, uh, the center of what he's trying to say. So we'll get there in a minute. But let's read it first. Uh, Matthew 10, 16 to 33 uh, is today's passage. And uh, we'll read it in full to begin. Verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Okay, uh, one thing I want to do to begin here is go back to verse 23. It's another aside, essentially. Some of you uh, may have picked up on this or were aware of this before in a prior reading of this passage, but it's an important uh, teaching element to the passage, and that is talking about the timeline of all of this. Uh, it does affect how we approach it and affect if we even see ourselves in the passage at all or to what degree we do. And so I want to just go here just for a couple of minutes. And, and the issue then is really, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the timeline of the persecution. So in verse 23, he says to his disciples, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So the question is, what does before the Son of Man comes mean? What's, what's the timeline there? And actually, a sub-question could be, what is the Son of Man? That's a bit of an abstract, deeply theological term. So first to address that, in a nutshell, uh, the Son of Man phrase comes from an Old Testament passage in Daniel 7, one of the prophetic books, and like everything in the Bible, it's anticipating Christ. But Daniel, one of the prophets, when Israel's in exile, gets an apocalyptic vision from God where he sees God called the Ancient of Days over everything, a picture of him in heaven on his throne, and proceeding from him, one called the Son of Man. It's Christ. It's ultimately Jesus beforehand. But Daniel's seeing this, and associated with this Son of Man is all kinds of kingly victory, triumph type things. So, in association with the Son of Man proceeding from the Ancient of Days from God, uh, what Daniel sees is victory for the people of God, triumph. The Son of Man triumphing over all of their enemies and bringing peace and order and rule to those who he's saving. So that's basically what he's seeing. There's a, a lot more to that in Daniel 7, but basically in a nutshell, that's prophetically and apocalyptically what Daniel's seen in this dream or vision. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying, I'm that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shepherd, I'm going to deliver, I'm going to destroy the enemies of my people, and I'm going to bring them peace and security and salvation and wholeness forever. That's what he's doing. So Christ is fulfilling this in multiple capacities. He's still before the cross. That's where all of the Son of Man imagery and the empty tomb ultimately take shape. We'll come back to that here in a second. But he's basically saying, I'm the one. I'm here to usher in kingship and an era of everlasting salvation for all who believe. But then going back to verse 23 then, he's saying, 
before the Son of Man comes, we have to wrestle with that issue. What does it mean that the Son of Man, because he's already here, what does it mean that the Son of Man uh, comes? Because in Daniel 7, we see him proceeding from God on clouds and all this beautiful apocalyptic imagery. But what is that really ultimately, in a more pointed sense, referring to? So there are three options here uh, that people all, there are different people that agree with all of these or one of, one of the three of these things, or all of them to a degree. Uh, but three options are Jesus is referring to his resurrection. The Son of Man ultimately rides on the clouds and brings in this type of, uh, this type of rain and authority and power and salvation through the cross. It's, a, it's, it's alluded to there, but ultimately the empty tomb. The second option is AD 70. In that year, uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed which is a, a hugely significant theological and historical event from a Christian perspective because it's a final symbol, it was a final symbol, of the passing away of the Old Testament and the arrival of the New Testament. This is alluded to in the Bible uh, elsewhere. Here it could be argued it's at least kind of in the subtext there, but historically, at least for Christians, it doesn't matter how much you might see it in the Bible or not, but historically for Christians, they looked at that and said, the New Testament's here it happened at the cross and the empty tomb, but what happened in AD 70, about 40 years after Christ died on the cross, was this final symbol of the passing away of the shadow, the temple, the building, whereas Christ has surpassed it and replaced it now. He's the temple. And the gathered people of God now, Jew and Gentile, the Bible says, are the temple. We are the building and the citizenship and the country and the nation of God. It's no longer the old things that's been surpassed. And so Christians put their finger on that it said when it was destroyed, it was, in a sense, kind of a judgment. God is bringing judgment upon the old system and the laws and the sacrifice that came with it that could never purify only Christ, but that set the stage for him, but were never meant to be those ultimate realities. So, so one perspective is to say that the Son of Man really arrived when that occurred 40 years after as well. Uh, the third perspective is Jesus' second advent, so his second coming. I think that Jesus primarily has the first uh, perspective in mind, the resurrection, for just a couple of reasons, that can, and they're both contextual. In the immediate context, Jesus is just talking. If you are here last week, you saw this. He's talking about, and he's implying, I'm going to send you out immediately. So it would, make, it would be a little bit inconsistent for Jesus to suddenly, just on a whim, in a verse really, change timelines as though persecution would not begin right away. And furthermore, the third camp here, the third perspective is difficult to reconcile because how could Jesus be talking about the second coming here, and talking about persecution when all the disciples are, we still wait for the third thing, obviously, as well. So all the disciples are long dead for millennia. It would was, it was seem a little bit weird for Jesus to be talking about uh, that type later in history and skipping a lot of things uh, when it didn't apply, wouldn't have applied to the disciples uh, in the first context. So that's the immediate context. Jesus is just in Matthew 10 and around that, talking about right then and there, he's going to send them out, and they will right then and there in that context be, be persecuted. The greater context is just to say, where else in the Bible does Daniel 7 type son of man triumphant imagery happen more than the empty tomb? Where else does it happen? Where else in the Bible, where else in history does God come and reign and rule and destroy enemies more than the cross and the empty tomb? And so I think remember that when we read the scriptures, it's easy for us to look at a passage like this and, and read our timeline into it and say, well, it must be the third camp because the Son of Man is coming. And that's, to a degree, that's true. Jesus will manifest his Son of Manship at his second arrival as well. But first and foremost, he manifested it on the cross. The timeline here makes a lot more sense. And Jesus has his eyes on Jerusalem. Remember, he's bent towards dying and resurrecting. And so when he speaks like this in the early parts of the Gospels, we should always presume that. That what he's saying, what he's doing, what he's demonstrating, what miracles he's doing... It's all bent towards the cross. It's all bent towards the empty tomb. First and foremost. Doesn't mean things don't flow out from that into the rest of history, but first and foremost, he has the empty tomb and, and the cross in mind. We're going to talk actually a lot more about this later because Jesus talks about end time stuff a little bit later in chapter 24 in Matthew. This is a bit of a scratching the surface today. Uh, we're going to come back to Son of Man stuff later and talk about these three perspectives uh, playing out in, in terms of how we understand the end of history how we understand the goal of history and the end times and what the Son of Man, what Son of Man arriving really means. So that's going to be several months from now, but we get a little bit of a hint and a taste of it here. So I think that, again, going back to, to Matthew 10, 
I think Jesus has the resurrection in mind when he's talking about the Son of Man coming. So you're going to, be, you're going to experience persecution now, and you're not going to be able to go through all the towns of Israel until uh, or before I go to the cross and before I rise again and in that way come as the Son of Man. But with all of that said, a lot of times prophecy is layered biblically. And, and this is not an exception. So a lot of times prophecy has an initial fulfillment and then a greater one and then some other ones that kind of resemble that one but don't you know, replace it or are not one-to-one correlations with it. And I think this is another example of that. So if that's the case, all three of these things can have some truth. It's just that we have to put some emphasis on the, the greater one, the one that Jesus probably first and foremost had on his mind, which is the resurrection. But when we add all of them together and we see some credence to the third one, Jesus' second coming or second advent, that's where it starts to apply to us. So, so here's the idea. The disciples' experience of persecution before the resurrection typifies the Christian's experience of persecution historically, both before AD 70 and all the way through history up to the second advent. We read about one of them today. It typifies what Christians would later experience as they wait for that second manifestation of the arrival of the Son of Man, which is what we're still waiting for here in year 2013 AD. We're still longing for that second arrival, but it's typifying. But Jesus is still focused on, first and foremost, the first manifestation of that. But again, because it's layered, it means something to us. So we'll come back here in a little bit. We're going to walk through this passage today and explain what Jesus is saying to the first audience, to his disciples. But as we do, note how that resembles the type of persecution we get now. And the same types of warnings and promises and reality checks that he gives them uh, apply to us today because these prophecies and things can be layered, have different dimensions to them. Okay, so that's the first thing. The first issue to get out is a timeline issue. Of this. Before the Son of Man comes, though, to the disciples, talking about his resurrection, uh, they will not be able to go through all of the towns of Israel. But let's go back now and go through the passage. So verse 16, we're going to start there. The first thing I want to do is unpack this idea of the sheep among wolves. So verse 16a says again, Jesus to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Which is intended to be just odd, right? And stand in contrast to what we read last week. Last week, Jesus basically paints himself as a shepherd that gathers. We looked at Ezekiel 34, another one of the prophets of the Old Testament, where God says, I'm going to be the one to gather sheep in from danger. So the implication is away from wolves or other types of animals and threats that sheep have. I'm going to gather them away from that because that's where they are now. They're scattered amidst them. I'm going to go out and gather them in. It's a biblical picture of salvation. If you believe in Jesus today, that's happened to you. You've been gathered away from the wilderness into the promised land of his presence. He's done it for you. You've been, scattered. You've been separated from him He's gone out, found you in danger, slayed your enemies, whatever wolf it was, the wolf of sin ultimately, the wolf of Satan secondarily, the wolf of yourself, you could say as well, and other things. He's slayed them, he's brought you into his presence, and he's shepherded you in that way. So that's the context of last week. It was about gathering. It was about salvation. So, But here, he says, Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of that, and then on the heels of that, saying here in verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. I mean, what kind of shepherd does that, right? We, I was reading one guy that was talking about this passage saying, we're used to seeing artistic depiction of Jesus like saving sheep off the cliffs. You ever seen something like that or whether it's a cheesy painting or not? But shaving, saving the sheep off the cliffs or maybe uh, fighting back wolves or, or untangling them from a thicket or something. But when is any, have you ever seen an artist? I, I looked for one, I couldn't find it. But have you ever seen an artist depict Jesus Sending sheep into a wolf's den with his staff, you know, or something. I don't know. I think it'd be kind of cool. But anyway, but the reality is, this is the nature of the Christian life and mission right here. If you get last week's passage and you get this week's, you have a synopsis of the nature of Christian mission. Protection and suffering held in tension. Or protection amidst danger. That, that is a wonderful, and Jesus is saying it here in one way, but the Bible says it a ton of ways. God is with us in the storm. doesn't take us around it many times. Sometimes he, he does or he can, but most of the time, he's with the people of God in the valley or in the shadow or in the darkness amidst enemies. He's providing protection in that context. And that's what, that's what we're seeing here. 
It's like not, not going out and right away taking care of all the wolves. He's sending his sheep out with his protection and presence amidst them, ultimately with, with a message. But that's what we're seeing here. And really, it's telling us that Jesus has a mission for his people that will include suffering and persecution for all and may, for some, include severe forms of suffering and, and even death. Can't avoid that, right? He's saying, you're the sheep. I'm sending you out among the wolves. And even though I have, in one sense, gathered you in and slayed them, in another sense, some of you will be eaten. You just will. And historically, that has been the case over and over and over again. God's promises always come true. He never lies. He depicts reality perfectly all the time. And so we can look back at history and just see how time and time again this has been the case. And I think what a great example today of protection amidst danger. I mean, you look at these individuals who are saying these types of things amidst danger and what they're empowered to speak. We're actually going to see today how we already saw when we read how Jesus provides what to speak amidst persecution and gives us words. If we're afraid, what am I going to say when I'm dragged before the magistrates and into the arena when people are just hating me? What am I going to say? Uh, Jesus says, I'm going to actually provide you the words in that moment. So don't fear. and Don't be anxious. In that moment, I'll be with you, helping you to speak or to keep your mouth shut to the glory of God. So now one of the things we're going to see here today, and I alluded to this earlier, is how closely this relates to Jesus' mission. It's one of the most important things you can see here today is not just this matter-of-fact statement that Christians will suffer, though that's true. What we have to see here is a typification and an embodiment of what Jesus is later going to do on the cross. He's the ultimate sheep. So really what you, as you picture Jesus sending sheep into an area where there's wolves, this fits really well with what we know about God's plan to redeem the world from sin, right? How did God redeem the world from sin? He sent a sheep to wolves, right? He sent a sheep to wolves. He sent his son, the Lamb of God, into a wolf's den to be slaughtered. That's how God saved you. That's how God saved the world from sin. There was no other way. That's the means by which sin is erased. That's the means by which we're, we are shepherded and gathered back to God. That's how it happens. God dies in our place as the ultimate lamb. So the Bible paints himself as a lamb for this reason. John 1.29 says, The Lamb of God, this is John the Baptist seeing Jesus, the Lamb of God, the sheep of God, who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, the Lamb of God who's being sent to the wolves. Behold, look, your salvation is here. And this is how he's going to save you. He's going to die where you deserve to. He's going to be eaten where you deserve to. That's what's going to happen. He, he is, in Isaiah 53, read this this morning as well. This is from an Old Testament perspective. Isaiah 53, looking ahead several hundred years before Christ, but speaking of him, he is the suffering servant who is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And in that slaughter, takes sins away. That's what he's like. He's like a lamb who kept his mouth shut and who was silent and gentle and innocent, but who went to the slaughter willingly to die in our place for sins. So, so Jesus' sufferings then, biblically, are typical of ours and vice versa because we're united to his experiences. The Bible says all over the place that we're in him and he's in us and we're, we're one flesh with him, like uses marriage imagery, like a husband and wife are one flesh, so are we one flesh with Jesus Christ. So if that's the case, then it makes sense that the ultimate divine act of salvation biblically would in a lesser way be lived out by his people. If we're that close to Jesus and his experiences, it would make sense that if he's the ultimate sheep led to the wolves, that we in a lesser way would be many sheep led out to many wolves. We just would. And that's exactly what happens here in the Bible. It's exactly what happens historically. It's exactly what happens to many of you in this room and is presently. That's what's going to happen. So Jesus is saying what I love about this type of teaching, among other things, is that what he's doing is he's taking uncertainty out of the question. Right? You know, a lot of times fear arises and anxiety arises from the uncertain. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week? Is this normal? And Jesus addresses that and says, it's normal to suffer. It's normal to be persecuted. Expect it. Don't be surprised. And if that's the case, if that's our mindset, we're going to be much, much, much less fearful and anxious for persecution, right? He's helping stifle fear over this by saying it's going to happen. On some level, it's going to happen. But I'm with you. I take care of sparrows. How much more am I going to be with you? 
the pinnacle of my creation, made in my image. I will end especially my people now because you're one of my saved ones. I'm going to be with you in that moment where you're being sliced open for the sake of the gospel or just ridiculed a little bit. Huge spectrum here, which I'll come back to here uh, in, in a second. So this is actually what verses 24 and 25 get at as well. just want to read this quick. A disciple is not above his master nor a teacher above his servant or servant above his master. Uh, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, which is synonymous with Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Jesus is saying, they have called me Satan. How much more will they call you Satan? How much more will they malign you? I'm the son of the perfect son of God. And people haven't understood that. And they're crediting my miraculous works with demonic power. So how much will they misunderstand, how much more, or in a, just in a related sense, will they misunderstand your message and how you demonstrate the gospel? Expect it. It happened to me, and I'm in you. I'm empowering your words and your deeds. It's going to keep happening in a cyclical sense over and over and over again as the church prods ahead throughout history through faith by the power of God. All right, so he just says it's going to happen. The next section here is, or idea, is so beware of men. So he explains it. Verses 18 and 21 to 22, get at that. I'll read those one more time. He says, And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. So again, going back to what we just talked about, one of the first and foremost points here is to see that Jesus Christ is in this and a particular degree of his sufferings because he was later experienced this type of persecution as well as the ultimate rejected lamb. Three quick things on that. Matthew 26, we get a picture of how he's rejected by strangers. He deserved death, they say. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So physical and emotional and spiritual attack and persecution and ridicule there at the passion when Christ is about to be crucified. He was also rejected by his hometown. And people from his hometown, Nazareth, which likely included family, at least once removed, uh, took offense at him, Matthew 13. Friend rejection. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And then later, then all the disciples left him and, and fled. So we have to understand here, again, is that we are seeing the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sheep, fed to the wolves and rejected. That's what this is really about. That's what Matthew 10 is about. That's what this is all about. And in this, and what comes right after it on the heels of this, is what frees us. This is what makes us favorable to God right here. This is what makes us acceptable to him, is Jesus' rejection as an ultimate human, fully God as well, but as a human being, becoming like us and taking all the rejection, all of our sin, all of the pain, all the shame, all the darkness on himself. And when he does that, he says, when you believe in me and trust in me, it will pass over you. You won't go through this in an ultimate sense. We'll come back to how we experience it in a temporal sense, but never to this degree, but still a temporal sense here now. In an ultimate sense, though, you will always be acceptable and favorable to God. Always. Because of what my son has done for you, God declares to us through the gospel. But again, flipping this back on ourselves, relatedly, the persecution that Christians will face is like this. And look at how comprehensive it is. It's stranger, family, and friend. It's like every area of our life, relationally, is addressed here. Stranger, people you don't know, also family for many of us, or some of us, and friend will reject us and will hate us. And hatred, like I said before, won't necessarily be this severe, It'll never ultimately be this severe, of course. Christ took on the worst of suffering, but it still could mirror this in a way, a little bit. Uh, but the point is not to say, when have I been persecuted to this degree or to the degree that Jesus promises will be the case for disciples, but just to understand that, that persecution and some degree of rejection will be the normative thing for a Christian seeking to be visible with, uh, with his or her faith. So, it won't be identical won't be necessarily this severe, but it will be present. And actually, if you look historically, 
uh, Mike was referring to a portion of history where persecution was at a very high level uh, before the uh, 4th century AD when uh, Christianity became uh, more this Christendom model. It was more the official state religion, and then it went way down. Uh, so the church has really gone through seasons and times of great persecution and great times of peace as well. It depends on where you lived and what time of history you've been in. And the church is, but regardless, the church has always been on the outside and, the, and, and, on the, and the outcast uh, to a degree. It just depends on what, how are we going to see that, how are, we, how are we seeing that occur and happen in my context? That's been the question. It hasn't been, is it there at all? It's just always been, how is it manifesting itself uh, around us? So from nation to nation, uh, from era to era, persecution takes different forms, but, uh, but it's always there, whether loud or subtle. Actually, the statistics today, I uh, checked this week, that the stats are still true that about 300 Christians per day are killed for the faith, mostly in Africa, uh, but elsewhere in the world as well. And we don't think about that in a free country. We miss that. But about 300 per day. The Vatican actually just put out the same statistic in June. That they, uh, it's hard to count and get the actual numbers, but about 100,000 Christians last year, 2012, were killed for the faith. Not just dying, it's way higher. For the faith. For being Christians. Tortured, killed, shot, imprisoned, and then died in prison. All of that. About 100,000. Which turns out to be a little, about 270 per day. So it's, the stats are still around, around that. So um, for, the, for the last several decades, you could say, to be fair. But again, it, it always goes uh, up and down throughout, throughout history. So it's happening, loud or subtle. So whether Christians are burned alive or fed to lions or, or just the other side of the spectrum too, laughed at or some of you have been passed over for a raise or, or a job interview because you've been Christians. That's going to happen here today as well. It's just there's more subtle rejection and ridicule and they're not intelligent type sentiment in the world today that's, that's actually talked about here as well. Jesus is not just talking about being cut open for the sake of the gospel. He is. He's also talking about being called Satan, right? Verbal persecution. And actually back in chapter 5, it said, you'll be insulted for the sake of the gospel and for my name. So it's verbal as well. And, and in our era, that's the primary way we're being persecuted, but there's, there's still people that are somehow physically threatened. I actually know a pastor in uh, not in Minnesota here, but one of our networks who's had bricks thrown through his window and his kids threatened. And so just for being a pastor in a neighborhood, not welcome. I mean, this stuff happens still, but there's a spectrum. The point is persecution happens and the world as a whole is always against Christ. Always. So no matter what uh, place of life or if it's family or friend or stranger, in general, the church will always be reacted against and, and persecuted, whether, whether loud or subtle. And that included, and as Christians, we got to remember, we were part of the world before we weren't, right? We're called out from it, but Jesus, Jesus never, whenever he saves people, he never saves a friend. Jesus never goes out and saves someone who he kind, he kind of gets along pretty well with and who he can call a friend. He saves enemies 100% of the time. It is not a biblical concept to say Jesus goes out and saves people he gets along with friends. What is 100% true 100% of the time biblically? When God saves us, he saves a rebel and an enemy, one slapping him and spitting at him in the face like the guards were before his crucifixion. That's us, pictures of us. Whether we've persecuted Christians or been that vile about our rejection of God or not is, is beside the point. The point is, biblically, sin is not just what we do, it's in our gut, it's in our souls. It's a state of rebellion and the worship of the self. So if it's that deep, how much more do we need a Savior? If it's that deep, how much more do we need the Christ? If it's that deep, how amazing is the love of God that he came to rescue enemies, not people who kind of had it together more than these really bad people over here. Right? That's the nature of the gospel. That's actually the offense of the gospel. Many rejected and spat on and never listened to Christ again once he said, that's who you are. But I've come for you. It's the good news. That's the nature of the sheep here but I have compassion for them. They're harassed spiritually. They're helpless spiritually, but I've come to, to save them from that state of being harassed and make them, change them from enemy to friend. But in that beginning, they're always, we are always enemies of God, taking up arms against him. All right, so that's the second section. Beware of men. Third section here is how to act. 
So Jesus is just saying, this is going to happen. Beware of this particular type of persecution. Then he says, this is how you should act when this is happening. So four things I think are primary. A lot going on here, but four major things. First, act like serpents and doves. So be as wise as serpents and as innocent, or some translations say gentle, as doves. Those animals were typical of both of those traits in the first century, and so that's what's painted here. A bit proverbial. But serpents and doves. So wisely and gently. And, and I think, again, in a way that would embody Christ's passion, because we look to the passion of Christ, the suffering of Jesus, he was both these when on trial. But Christians are called then to be similar here and be thoughtful about these types of situations. When should we speak and be wise with our words? I think that's the idea with the serpent imagery. When to speak and when to be innocent and gentle and to absorb attack like an innocent or gentle dove. So when to speak or when not to speak to the glory of God essentially is the question. Jesus does both. And I think what's embodied in this encouragement is be wise and be spirit-directed Listen to God and, and be prompted for how, well, how much you should speak and how you, much you should refute heresy and debate and correct and how much you should just take ridiculous comments about the church or Christianity and absorb that like Christ absorbed your sin on the cross with a closed mouth. Both are very biblical and gospel-centered. The hard part is what do I do and when, right? But that's what makes verse, I think it's verse 24, I forget which verse it is, but when Christ promises to be with us and to give us words in the, in the time of persecution. That's where a lot of that gets, uh, where a lot of our fear and anxiety is taken away for that. Uh, but the point is to think about it. Speak or don't speak to the glory of God as you're being persecuted or laughed at or mocked or sneered. Pray for wisdom to know just when to take it for the sake of the gospel and when to expose evil or debate or correct misunderstandings. Again, uh, b- both are key. But I think one of the big things here is not to be When we're called to be like doves, we're called not to be reactionary. I think when a Christian is very reactionary and defensive, when they're confronted with what they perceive as bad theology or a huge misunderstanding about what Christianity really is or when they're attacked and insulted or when their family's threatened, if they're super reactionary, uh, what I think it portrays is a Christian that's not confident in his or her salvation. And in that moment, we're portraying that Jesus is not enough. And the reason Christians are able to not have to win debates and to keep their mouth shut, we're empowered to do that because our righteousness and our identity don't come from winning debates. Lose a debate for the glory of God. You don't save people anyway. Absorb terrible theology sometimes or just pass it over and say, this is not the right moment to talk and to make this person maybe look like a fool because of their misunderstandings of the Bible. You know, I'm going to love them here. I'm going to absorb that. And later, when the time permits and when God leads me to speak to the glory of God and to correct, then I will. But sometimes in persecution, verbal especially, and you're in the workplace or wherever, keeping your mouth shut is the way that God wants you to go and to be as innocent as a dove, especially if you're the one being a little bit prodded and mocked at, your way of life being a little bit highlighted as ridiculous or just old and dinosaur-like and ancient and unintelligent, or whatever it is. Uh, Sometimes just keeping the mouth shut, like Christ did before the cross, is the way to go. So, okay, that's the first thing. Serpents and doves. Second is persevering. Verses 32 and 33, read that one more time. This is super important. One of the biggest warnings of Scripture from Christ's mouth. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 13, 20 to 21 says, and Jesus is talking here about sowing the seeds of the gospel like a farmer on different types of soil. And then he describes what those seeds are. And he says here, in terms of one of them, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So Jesus is just saying here, persecution will not be worth it for some. Some some Christians, some people who profess faith initially, when they're persecuted, when trial arises on account of of the word, it won't be worth it and they'll be quick to deny Christ and act as though they never came to him in the first place. And Jesus is saying that's a type of seed that's not a true seed and they're not bearing true fruit to the glory of God. But he's just saying it's going to happen. And 
And I think his words are true. It's probably happening right here in this room today. Some of you are probably this type of seed. You have some type of persecution or you haven't had it yet, but when it comes, you'll be quick to deny and quick to reject Christ and not absorb this type of persecution because the end glory is much more worth it. And salvation from sin and eternal life is much more worth than these present sufferings uh, that, that we have now. So that's basically what he's saying. And by these people that reject Christ in this manner, they show themselves to have never truly known him. Uh, so Jesus is saying they never bear fruit. Okay, so that's the second thing, perseverance. So like serpents and doves, also persevering in the faith amidst persecution. Third is without fear or anxiety. So verse 26 says, Have no fear of these people who persecute you, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And uh, in 28 uh, to um, 31, you can go one more actually, John. Uh, on the bottom here, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So basically what Jesus is doing here, he's not just saying don't fear and don't be anxious. He's giving reasons why. So one reason is God knows those who are persecuting you. He does. And, and everything will be brought to light. And God is a just judge. And so there will be punishment in the end if they do not repent in the meantime and turn to Christ and find forgiveness as well. But God knows all. He'll judge all in the end. And he's more to be feared than the worst people in the world. This is just a very clear thing here. The worst things that we experience, persecution in this life, the worst it can do is kill us. But the worst we can experience in the next life is the destruction of the soul in hell, which is much worse. And, and if, if you weigh those two things together, I mean, Jesus is making a radical comment here. He's saying being burned alive here and now is much better than going to hell. Being drawn and quartered now, being crucified upside down now, being drowned now, being shot in the head now, is much better than your soul being destroyed in hell. What, think of the worst form of torture. He's still saying, don't fear it, because there's a God out there who can actually do more, to the, more than the body. He can destroy the soul. So it's just simple logic. He's just saying, fear God. Be obedient to God. Bend the knee to God. Be secure in your salvation in God through Christ and revere him. And then because of the, the degree of security you have in that, don't have fear to what people can do to you in this life uh, to, to your body. So God knows all. He'll judge all. Second thing is he'll be with you. Third thing is he'll help you speak in these type of circumstances. Fourth thing is he values you. We see his value of the sparrows, how much more us. So he'll be with us not just standing from afar and as a test, see how well we do. He'll actually be with us in the moment of persecution. Lots of grace there, right? You're not saved by how well you debate people. You're not saved by how well you refute heresy. You're not saved by how well you do that because he's with you in it, right? We can make that claim if God was way up in heaven a million miles away looking down to see how well you do when you're attacked for your faith. That's not what the Bible portrays here. It says he is with you, he loves you, and he's speaking through you. So much grace there, right? It's, just, it's a freeing way to enter into these things rather than to say, boy, I hope I do this well and it's up to me and this person's salvation is up to me and how I speak. Leave it behind. Jesus is saying, I will speak through you. I will be with you. I will protect you from danger. I will be inside you in that moment because you're already saved. So don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. You're already secure forever in the blood of my son. Just rest in that. So tons of grace here. And like I mentioned before, in a big picture sense, what he's doing is just removing uncertainty from the equation because fear rises out of that uncertainty many times, many times in life. So expect persecution, expect this type of, on any level, and believe that, believe that he's with you. Last, always preaching. I love how he says this here in verse 27. So he doesn't just say preach. Look what he says in verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered from me, proclaim on the housetops. So look at the way he's describing himself in terms of how he's teaching, right? He's saying, I'm whispering, I'm speaking in the dark to you, but what you are to do is to say it in the light and proclaim on the housetops. So there's a sense to which our mission as a church is louder and greater than Jesus' pre-cross ministry, right? 
louder and greater and, and better, you could even say. Or better said, his ministry in us now as the church is more explicit. It's louder. It's more centered on the cross. And it, it matters in that sense more than what he did uh, before in the pre-cross narratives of the gospel accounts. John 14, 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So Jesus says, you're going to do better things. You won't just whisper that the kingdom of God is near. That doesn't mean a ton, right? It means something. Jesus is on the threshold. But they're whispering, and Christ is whispering. They're going to start to announce in clearer ways as the gospel account goes on. But after the cross, after the empty tomb, that's when the church really picks up and says, and we start to proclaim. I mean, look at what happens right after in the book of Acts. Peter stands up, 2,000 people, 3,000 people are saved. He yells it from the, from the rooftops, so to speak, and thousands are saved. It's a louder ministry than what Jesus had pre-cross. But Jesus is now enabling this louder, not in the dark anymore, but in the light, clearer proclamation of the gospel that happens. Uh, he's enabling that in his church now in this point in history. So, Gospel's being whispered here in the dark, in the shadows, but it's going to come out in full force through his death and resurrection because that's the center of, of Christianity. And that's what we're called to proclaim from the housetops ultimately. All right, a couple of things here to close. What does this mean for us? I uh, want to be clear on one thing, uh, and the church has actually wrestled with this throughout the centuries, especially churches that are in seasons of peace and not as much physical persecution. Uh, but the point here is uh, to not go out and look for persecution. Uh, just to be clear, uh, the church has made a mistake, I think, a lot of people think, but the church made a mistake on that in the past where they've been in a season of peace and felt like I have to be suffering to be close to God. And that's actually where the monastic movement originated in its earliest forms anyway, back in the early centuries when Christianity became a state religion and no persecution happened. Uh, monastics, uh, uh, monks, formed. people went out into the desert, lived by themselves, never married, lived on poles, and ate little. And they thought, I'm suffering, I'm, I'm suffering, I'm bringing suffering upon my life in a way that's consistent now with scriptures. And, and I'm a little bit more of a, not that they all thought this, but a better Christian. I'm in a better spiritual place now uh, because of it. But that's not, not healthy. Not always healthy anyway. The point is not to go out and look for persecution. The point is welcome it when it comes. Welcome it when it comes. It's normative. Normative to the Christian experience to in some way uh, when we're living out the faith to be persecuted and to see the gospel in it. We talked a lot about uh, earlier. Christ is sending his sheep into the world to in part be many representations of himself. Many sheeps, many sufferings uh, to point back to, point back to himself. And that's it's one of the things you should, you should think about when you're persecuted is Jesus is really the one in me being persecuted. He's the one being hated and it's a small demonstration of what he went through for me. Remember, he wants you to see the gospel in all things. And one of the places you'll be able to see that is when you're hated, when you're looked over when you're sneered at, in a small, subtle way possibly. It's a drop in the bucket of the reality of what Christ went through for you, but it is there at least in part to remind you and to point you back to him. So don't miss the opportunity uh, to see in your persecution the persecution of Christ. And in a real, very real sense, it's happening. And actually, in Acts 9, when Paul is persecuted, or persecuting Christians, Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? So when you're hated for the faith, actually it's Jesus being hated, being hated in you. So again, this, this bolsters the idea that there are many sufferings of Christ happening, the suffering of the church, over and over and over again, so that we may demonstrate and point back to with our words the cross and see it ourselves and help others see it as well, even those who are persecuting, persecuting us. So that's the first thing. A second thing here is just to point us back to the main point, which is that Jesus is sending us with a message. We can't control how much we're persecuted here, uh, but we just have to obey the fact that we're sent out. That's actually the main active word here. Go with a message of hope and peace and grace to a dead and dying world. Proclaim it. And then if suffering comes and persecution comes, welcome it. But the main active verb here is just go. I'm sending you with a message. Proclaim and demonstrate the fact that the ultimate sheep has been sent to the wolves. That's the, that's the gospel. God has sent his sheep his son, his lamb, into the world to be eaten by wolves. And in that, we have salvation. Announce that. And then even demonstrate it a little bit when you're persecuted. Because when you're persecuted, your message will match what's happening to you when you're hated. Isn't that awesome? It's like God is just masterfully writing all this stuff into history perfectly. Nothing cannot declare the cross. Nothing. 
I mean, everything exists for his glory. Everything exists for his fame. Even when we're killed or hated or mocked, even that is a small demonstration of I've got it in control. I want that to happen because in that is a picture of my son doing that for you. It's everything, right? It's the top of the mountain, top of the pyramid. It's the climax of history and the climax of the scriptures. So be encouraged. Let it be a little worshipful moment for you as you go, uh, as you go forth into your life and experience these types of, these types of things. So, so three things just to summarize. Rejoice in the gospel of the rejected lamb. Preach and demonstrate this gospel to the world around you. Speak and act in a way that makes him famous. And then third, expect persecution and persevere in the faith no matter how severe it is. Never deny Jesus. And I'll end with one word to you that those of you who have, some of you probably have in this room or you will, if you have denied him amidst persecution, just repent and turn around. You're not saved by how well you hold fast there. You call the hold fast of the life raft that is Christ. But if that's you, if you're that third seed in the rocky soil, just lay it down and come back to Christ for forgiveness. He died for that sin as well. He's a loving Savior who desires to gather you back in like he did before. So make today the day that you just return to him and confess that sin and say, I'm, I'm sorry I've rejected you. Thank you for being faithful to me and dying for me. I don't deny you right now and help me in that moment in the future never to deny you again because I, I can't do that by myself. It's only the Spirit of God protecting my hard, rocky heart and rebel heart and making it a friend of yours that will enable that in the future. So, so if that's you today, n- never do it again, but come back to Jesus. He welcomes you still uh, with, with open arms. Let me pray for us. God, thank you, Lord, for the cross today. Thank you for saving us from our sins and showing us and just giving us a hint of grace, hint of the blood of the Lamb amidst the wolves here in this passage when you're talking about mission and persecution in the church. Thank you for what it first and foremost reminds us of. It reminds us of you. Uh, that you went to the wolves like a lamb to the slaughter. You went to remove transgressions from all those who believe or all those who cling to you in faith. So we give you all the glory today, God, for that. Help us to reorient our lives afresh to that truth uh, and protect us, God. As you protect us, lead us out into the world. Give us the words to say. Help us persevere. Help us to be serpents and doves. May we always be preaching no matter what. And remember that... um, we are called not to fear or be anxious because of all the truths we read today in the passage. So pray to remove fear and anxiety from us too and give us opportunities to lovingly, gently bring a message of hope and grace to a dead and dying world um, like you first did to us. You've done it to all of us in here. I pray to reciprocate that to the world around us. Empower our message, make it matter to the world, and uh, convert souls. We pray for more souls uh, for the glory of God. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.